Welcome to, um, I think it's Godpod 26. It could be, but we never know, we Graham. Never know. We right. never even bother to check. Welcome to Godpod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London, based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tomlin, in talking about theology, life, God, and just about everything else. It's a little bit different today from normal uh, because uh, normally we sit in a kind of cupboard in HDB. Um, uh, and normally we have biscuits. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and there's a, there's a distinct lack of the cupboard, which is fine. We don't mind not being in the cupboard, but the biscuits aren't here. <laughs> we'll survive. But uh, no, we are the, the guests tonight of uh, St. George's Hoban, which is uh, wonderful. This is far different from a cupboard, isn't it? It's um, kind of a, a very large square building. I, I kind of feel like I'm in Solomon's Temple here because there are sort of pillars and gold leaf everywhere. Oh, biscuits! <laughs> oh, yes, fantastic. Well, the biscuits have arrived. Well, Mr. Chris Bentley, thank you very much for the biscuits. Which is better than the smell of burning animals you'd have got in Solomon's Temple, anyway. That is true. Quite. So, um, well, as, as you can probably hear, I wanna, uh, we have Mike here this evening. Mike, Mike Leod, according to my billing <laughs> so, on the sheet here. Mike Leod, as he's, as he's called. Mike Leod, presumably Lizzie <laughs> Wolfle. Yeah. yeah. But we also have, which is a great privilege for us, Lizzie Wolfe. Hello. Lizzie, uh, now tell us, what, what, do you, what do you do here at St George's? I am the curate here at St George's, which generally means that I'm responsible for discipleship and evangelism, but the vicar is away at the moment, uh-huh. so we're changing everything. Right. <laughs> Including so. the locks, presumably. <laughs> <laughs> so you won't recognise anything at all when he comes back again. And uh, St George's was, um, was planted out of HTB several years ago? That's How many right, years about ago? five years ago. Five years ago. So that's where we are tonight. We're uh, in St. George's Hoban, and um, we have a number of people who sent in questions from the, uh, the congregation here. So uh, without any further ado, what we'll do is to get those people to come up and read their questions. The first one is going to be from Ben. Can two things be true at the same time? Um, the question comes about because there seems to be uh, a hypocrisy in my use of the word truth. So I might say to people uh, that there either is a God or there isn't, Um, and you've got to decide there can't be a God and not be a God. And yet I'd equally say that Christ was fully God and fully man, that he was 100% both. Are these two not contradictory? Any ideas? No. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, come on, Mike, we can do better than that. Oh, okay. (laughs) So there is a question. It's kind of about the nature of truth. Can you say two things that are... Uh, apparently contradictory at the same time and in particular I guess the question is is related to the, the whole idea of the, the, the humanity and the divinity of, of Christ so who wants, to, who wants to kick off with this one Mike you look like you're ready to go uh, you're I am but I'll stay just for this one <laughs> um, <laughs> yes I, I mean I agree with the question that um, the first one is an either straight, straight yes or no I mean, either there is a God or there isn't a God um, that's just, you know, you can't both say there is and there isn't simultaneously without being in contradiction. The second question, on the other hand, implies that there's something contradictory between humanity and divinity. Uh, and that's, that's the point at issue, and that's the question, as whether that is in fact the case. And I think particularly the fact that humanity is made in the image of God in the first place, that it's modelled upon God, that, who God, that when God made us, he made us 
in some ways as models of himself, and secondly, he made us with a view to becoming one of us. And therefore, humanity and divinity are not opposites. They're not completely contradictory things. They are, in fact, one is modeled upon the other. There's a close affinity between the two. Um, and that's why it isn't a contradictory thing to say that Jesus is both human and divine. Now, of course, exactly how that works out um, is, is a more complex question. But they're not contradictory things. They're not like, um, you know, goodness and badness. Uh, they're uh, things that are mo one, upon, one is modelled upon the other. Thank you, Mike. Lizzie, anything to add to that? That is very interesting, but I'm, I think there are still a few questions that I would He's have. always like this in tutorials. <laughs> <laughs> because most of us aren't fully God and fully human. It's still, it's still difficult to imagine how uh, the second person of the Trinity can uh, become man without stopping becoming God. Yeah, tell us a few of them. So things like, for example, um, the classic one would be that God knows everything mm -hmm. and we don't. And so uh, how is it possible for it to be one person who knows everything and doesn't know everything? Okay. Well, there are a number of ways one can uh, get around that particular issue. That is precisely one of the complex things of, to which I was referring earlier. Um, <laughs> The obvious way would be, or one of the classic ways of doing that, is to say that God in some way, uh, though he remains fully divine, um, he restricts himself in some way. That he places in the incarnation. In mean. the incarnation, when he be becoming human, uh, he doesn't let go of anything pertaining to divinity, but he does let go of some of the trappings of divinity, divests himself of some of the trappings, divests himself of some of the knowledge, um, and becomes like one of us. So there's a kind of letting go of some of the trappings, but not of any of the, the essential part of it. Now, of course, that doesn't lessen his being God, the fact that he's restraining himself, constricting himself, limiting himself in some way. God limits himself in all sorts of ways. He limits himself when he... Um, chooses to respect human freedom, to give us freedom and then to respect it. That's a limitation of his power. Uh, so God is somebody who does in, all the time limit himself. And the fact that he limits himself by becoming human and in the incarnation doesn't stop him from being God any more than respecting our freedom limits himself and, and stops him from being God. I guess one, one of the, the issues that we sometimes get a little bit confused about around this question is, um, is that we think it is somehow essentially human to be sinful. You know, you know, to, to err as human, we say, you know, that, that well, you know, well, how can Jesus be sinless and human? Because surely it's human to be sinful. Um, but I think that's actually a, a, it's a, it's a slight mistake to say that actually it's essentially human to be sinful, because actually that's our, our fallen humanness, not our original humanness as created in, in the image of God. We were not created to be sinful. Sin, sin, sin and evil are kind of invaders into uh, human life and human experience and the life of, uh, of, of this world. They're not, they don't naturally belong there. And, um, and therefore, I think that particular issue, that particular problem of you know, how can Jesus be sinless and human uh, is not really an issue at all, I think, at the end of the day, because humanity in its fullest sense was meant to be sinless. And um, maybe another way of putting it in, in a slightly different way is to, is to say, um, if, you, if you can imagine the, the qualities of God, 
And uh, what are the qualities we would say are particularly uh, godlike um, from the pages of the scriptures? We would say things like goodness and uh, graciousness and um, uh, faithfulness and love uh, and um, holiness. Holiness and all of those things. And, uh, but then if you ask the question, what are the qualities that would make a perfect human being, the most fully human person you could possibly think of, you kind of end up thinking of things like faithfulness and holiness and love and, in other words, exactly the same kind of qualities. Uh, and that tells us, I think, that if you like, the more like God we become, uh, the more human we become. Uh, not, not the other way around. It's not that the more like God we become, the less human we become, and therefore the more weird we become. Actually, the more, the more normal we become, the more properly human we become. And so therefore, as Mike was saying, I think there is this, this kind of convergence between humanity and, and divinity that, that tells us that they're not actually mutually contradictory things. To be fully human and fully divine, which at the end of the day is, they are almost the same thing. Part of the problem, I think, is that we tend to think we, that we have a, everybody knows what we mean by God. Uh, and we actually don't know what we mean by God. And actually people think that they know what it is to be a human being and actually we don't know what it is to be a human being. Um, and so you often get people saying, you know, is Jesus God? As if we knew what God was. Uh, and the only question is, was Jesus that? Uh, but actually we don't know what God is. What we know in that bit of the equation is, is, is Jesus. Because we can read about him. Uh, we found out you know, what he was like, what he, how he reacted, how he acted, how he, what he, how, what things he said, the kind of relationships he was in, how he was in, responded to various situations he had placed in. We know what he was like. We know what God's like. And the Christian doctrine of the Incarnation says, actually look at Jesus, and that will tell you what God is like, and it will tell you uh, what it is to be a full, a full and proper and true human being. Uh, so if you start there, then you're not going to get a contradiction. If you start with the incarnation, uh, then it must be that these two things are compatible categories because it's happened. Uh, and then you have to define your humanity and your divinity accordingly. Start there and work from there. I think that also starting with Jesus uh, takes us back to the question about truth because Jesus said he is the truth. And, and that's, again, slightly unusual understanding of what truth is. We don't normally think of truth being a person. We think of it being some kind of abstract concept. Uh, but it's a similar idea that actually we need to start with Jesus. But no, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very interesting question. And I suppose it's, um, it's one that, that I mean, we've dealt with it in, in connection with the incarnation, this idea of God being, being uh, Jesus being divine and human at the same time. And I suppose that illustrates a more general truth sometimes that when we that uh, it is a normal part of, of um, our thinking about the world sometimes to find things that seem to be mutually contradictory on the surface, but actually uh, underneath there is a, a deeper logic that shows that they can hold together. And, um, and I guess scientists are doing that all the time, trying to find things that are seem seemingly mutually con contradictory and then finding something uh, underneath that explains why these things can be true even though they, they seem not to be true at the same time. So I suppose it's, it's saying to us that, that just because two things um, might seem like a paradox, they might seem like things that don't fit together, doesn't necessarily mean that they don't. So let, let's move on to our second question, uh, which is from Sue. 
Is the Old Covenant relevant to Christians in the 21st century, or should we be taught only from the New Covenant? The question arises because of recent discussions at St George's regarding tithing. Tithing has been dismissed as irrelevant because it's part of the Old Covenant. Mm. So, the law, the Old Covenant, is it still relevant to Christians today? Liz, do you want to have a go at this one to begin with? Well, it's, I think it's quite confusing speaking as an ex-lawyer. Um, it seems to me when I read the New Testament that there's a whole mixture of statements about the, the Old Covenant and the law, and some of them seem quite positive statements where it's being affirmed in some way, and other of the, the statements in the New Testament seem to be quite negative um, and saying that it's got no more relevance or that kind of thing. So it's quite confusing, and we're kind of not quite sure what to do with it. It seems like Jesus is bringing in this whole new way of being. We've got the life of the Spirit, and it's not just Israel anymore. We've got the new covenant. And then he goes around saying things like, you know, uh, I've come to fulfill the law, and not one jot or tittle is going to pass away, or whatever the exact words are that he says in Matthew. Um, and then, then you get those bits where he says, you know, not one jot or tittle is going to pass away. It sounds like he's saying, yep, the law's here for good. I'm not going to change anything. But then, the, um, you know, when he gets to Sabbath laws, for example, he seems pretty, pretty lax, really. Yeah. And fairly kind of liberal, really, when it comes to, to, to keeping the Sabbath. I think the key thing is around the word fulfillment, because it, it seems to come up again and again that Jesus is here to fulfill the law. And that's not a word that I would normally associate with the law. I would normally think about keeping the law or breaking the law. And fulfilling it seems to be pointing to the fact that there's, uh, there's something kind of deeper than the law. The law's expressing something. It's got some kind of purpose. Uh, and Jesus can fulfill that underlying purpose without necessarily keeping all the specific commandments. So I would go down that track, I think. Hmm. Mike, would you go down the same track? Oh, very much so, I'm down the same track, yes. <laughs> um, on the other hand... <laughs> No, I, I, I'm giving a lecture tomorrow at the St. Paul's Theological, Theological Centre on um, transfiguration. And that's an interesting case in point for this, really, because you've got Moses and Elijah there on the mountain with Jesus. Um, now, that is both a huge affirmation of Moses and Elijah on what they stand for, which is the whole Old Testament, the whole Old Covenant, the Lord and the Prophets. Um, and, and Tertullian says on one occasion to one of the people who wants to cut all the Old Testament out of the New Testament and not have anything to do with it, says, you know, there's a strange way Jesus got of doing that by having them with him on the mountain. Um, and yet, on the other hand, it's Jesus who's at the center of the thing. Uh, and therefore, he not only affirms the Old Testament, he also relativizes it. Uh, and it is him who sheds light upon them as well as they who point to him. So you can't let go of it, you can't cut it out, you can't do without it. Uh, you, have, you can't understand Jesus without those uh, forerunners who point to him. But on the other hand, um, he's the one who's the model. He's the one who's the form of the fulfillment. And it is in the fulfillment that you understand the promise, not the other way around. Um, Sue was saying, she came up to, uh, to um, ask the questions that this might be quite a simple one. But just to reassure you, it's not a simple one at all. But actually, Christians have argued over this for, for, for centuries. In fact, at the, at the Reformation, there was a, I mean, a really big debate over this very question. And what is the ongoing relevance of the law uh, for, for Christians? And um, 
you know, so you know, theologians came up with different uses of the law. So you had, you know, the the idea of the law, the Old Testament law, is there to show us how far short we fall of God's standards, and so um, it, it kind of reveals our sinfulness, our, our, our inability to to meet the standards of God. That's one way of understanding the law. Um, the second was a, as a sort of general guide for for human life, you know, so that um, magistrates and, and governments and um, uh, lawyers like Lizzie, um, you know, know how to order society. And everyone pretty well agreed with those ways of thinking about the law. But then this question of what ongoing relevance does the law have for Christians was a really sort of controverted question, and people really spent a lot of time uh, debating that one. And um, uh, people came up with different ways of understanding it. So one of them was, for example, um, that uh, they made a distinction between the moral and the ceremonial law. Uh, the idea was that um, you know, Jesus had come, and because he'd, he has died on, on a cross, uh, therefore the sacrifices in the temple were no longer necessary because Christ uh, was the, 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 the sacrifice once and for all that had been done. And therefore the, the, the kind of bits of the Old Testament that are all to do with the ceremonial in the temple, uh, they're now uh, irrelevant, or they're, they're done away with, they're fulfilled in, in that sense. Uh, but on the other hand, the moral law, law about you know, how we behave in society and, and to each other, um, the reformers say, well, no, that law is still valid. Um, some reformers said that. So that's one way of sort of making a distinction between the bits of the law of the Old Testament that are no longer relevant for Christians and the bits of the law that, that, that are relevant. Um, difficulty with that is that sometimes it's quite difficult to tell what category something falls into. And um, I suppose that so people have developed other ways of, of making that distinction between what is of, of, of abiding relevance and what, what isn't. And I guess one way, I think, of thinking about it is that... Um, is that if we read the Old Testament as Christians through the eyes of the New Testament, and therefore one of the questions we always have to ask about Old Testament law is, is it explicitly either um, uh, commended or reaffirmed in the, in the New Testament, or is it explicitly uh, done away with in the New Testament? And that can be a bit of a guide. So, for example, in, a, in the book of Acts, you get Peter um, uh, having this revelation from the Spirit that the food laws are no longer relevant for Christians. Um, big debate over circumcision. And the, 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 what the church came to was that circumcision is no longer at the mark of, uh, of Christians. Um, and so you get those kind of things, things going on. And, uh, but on the other hand, certain aspects um, of the law, like marriage, for example, uh, that um, sex is within the context of a one-man, one-woman, life-to-long relationship, uh, that is affirmed by uh, Jesus, and uh, so therefore that is a, a, of abiding relevance for Christians today. So that's one of the ways of, of doing it. So going back to the question of tithing, uh, one could argue that actually tithing is not explicitly um, kind of reaffirmed in the New Testament. In fact, in the New Testament, you get a slightly different approach, which is that uh, in the, in, when Paul writes to, to the church in Corinth, he says, you know, give according to your income. He has a kind of a more proportional approach to giving rather than a sort of strict 10% thing, which is why I think many Christians uh, would say that tithing is not no longer the kind of absolute standard for Christians, um, but uh, there's a sort of slightly more nuanced approach to giving. And I think one way of giving, embodying that whole understanding of the relationship between the Old Testament and the, and the New Testament is to say that the Old Testament, like Jesus, has to go through death and resurrection. It has to go through the cross and the resurrection and out the other side. And out the other side, it looks different. And some things are left behind, as, as Graham was saying. Um, some things 
continue the other side, and some things continue but very changed uh, and reinterpreted. Um, and the question, of course, with this particular one is, is, is tithing one of those that gets left behind? Is it one of those that gets reinterpreted, or is it one of those that's reaffirmed? Um, and, uh, and I agree with the, my, my boss on that one. <laughs> he has to. <laughs> no, he doesn't really. <laughs> Good. Thank you, Sue, for a very interesting question. Um, let's go on to our third one, which is from, um, from Johnny. The wages of sin is death, and the payment of this price is the sacrificial death of Jesus. But who made up these rules that God is following? Isn't he bigger than rules? Who's making him pay? And why does sacrificing one person pay for the sins of mankind? Hmm. Oh, very tricky one, that one. Mm, over to you, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> thought you might say that. Um, yeah, so I guess this, this question is coming out of um, the sense we have that, that somehow this structure is set up whereby um, you know, Jesus has to die for the sins of the world. There seems to be a kind of rule that's set up like that. And what, why is it? Who, who makes up these rules and shouldn't God be, be bigger than those rules? Um, I guess there, there, are, there are two different kinds of, of rules or laws or, or whatever you, you could say. That, um, one is, if you like, a fairly kind of arbitrary one that we might, we might make up. So, so like, you know, if, you, if you're a parent, you might say to your child, you know, you know, if you keep on shouting like that, you're not going to go to the cinema tomorrow. Um, which is a kind of, you could have had any sort of sanction, um, but that's the kind of arbitrary one you happen to have thought up. Um, but then there's another kind of rule or law, which is that if I, um, if I, had to, if I was to drop this book, uh, it will fall to the floor. Um, and that's, if you like, not an arbitrary one, that's just the way the world is made. That things when things that are heavy when you drop them they, they fall um and so there's a that there's that kind of distinction i think between different kinds of rules now it strikes me that this this the structure into which um the atonement fits is more like the second than it is the first it's not a sort of arbitrary thing that god has has set up but instead it's 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 the way the world is now obviously the question is, you know why is the way the world is the way the world is um who made up the rules and the, and in that sense the answer has to be god himself and that therefore what we're talking about here is if you like the the structure of a of a moral and a regular universe um the reason why books fall uh, this particular book will fall as i drop it is because we live in a world where there is such a thing as, as gravity, and, and, and it's always happened before, and I can predict that's going to happen uh, again. Um, so it is part of the structure of a, a run. I can rely upon it. Uh, this is a universe that has a structure. It can be relied upon in that sense. It's not a, an arbitrary thing. Um, and therefore, you know, I guess the background to this is saying that God has created a world in which there are, there is a sort of deep structure which we can rely on. Uh, and therefore it's a world which is actually a safe place to be because we can rely upon that structure. Um, we're not going to suddenly find one day that I drop a book and it floats off into, into the air. Now, in another sphere, going into the sort of more moral sphere, there is, seems to be something about um, that when sin happens, when someone does something wrong to someone else, uh, it hurts. And when something really serious is done to someone else, there is always some kind of price to be paid for it. And that is because that thing is serious. And it seems to me that 
And you, you can imagine that that's the case. I mean, I mean, trivial things, you know, someone steps on your toe, you kind of say, oh, that's all right, doesn't matter, just, just you know, um, let's carry on. Um, if someone steals your wife or your husband or abuses your child, that's a very different thing altogether. That's a, a deeply painful thing and something, someone has to sort of bear the, the, the cost, there's a cost involved in that crime, as it were, that someone has to bear. Um, when a relationship is broken by something really serious, someone has to bear the price of, that, of, the, of, the, uh, of the, the restoring of that relationship. Either the person who's done the thing themselves has to, has to, um, has to you know, bear the price of, sort of turning away from what they've done and coming back, or the, and the person who's been wronged has to, if you like, swallow their own desire for revenge and, and, to, and to be reconciled. And so there is this, seems to be this structure within the world that that reconciliation always costs in some way. It's not cheap. Sin is not a cheap thing. And it's a sign of how seriously God takes it when we hurt each other or when we hurt him. And uh, that, I think, is something to do with why, you know, within the whole structure of this moral universe, when the most awful thing of all happens, when we rebel against our creator, uh, there is a, some kind of price to be paid. And the good news is that it's a price that's far greater than we could ever pay, but our Creator pays it for us. So that's just, I think, one way of uh, thinking about this question, but um, others may have other things to add as well. Mike? Well, the, the kind of wages of sin of, is death thing. Again, I think, as, as Graham was saying, it's an inherent thing. It's not an arbitrary kind of rule, I'm going to punish you by you know, killing you off if you rebel against me. God is life. God is the author of life. Uh, God is the source of life. If we cut ourselves off from him, that is death. If we ultimately and irrevocably cut ourselves off from him, you, you can't continue to exist because it is he who sustains life. Uh, so it's not an arbitrary thing. It's just built into the way uh, relationship is and existence is. I was going to say what Lizzie. Mike just said. <laughs> <laughs> you just got there first. All, all, all that teaching, it, it all paid off in the end. <laughs> okay, well, I don't know if that answers your question, but anyway. It, um, but it's all we know. Exactly. That's <laughs> so right. it's going to have to do. <laughs> but um, yeah, very, I mean, yeah, very, very interesting question, and one you could go on talking about for ages. But we won't, because we haven't got time, and we've got to just fit in one more question before the end of our. Um, uh, time today and the last one is um, from Peter why did God create hell okay so a very simple one oh yes <laughs> why did God create hell um, Dr. Evil is licking his lips <laughs> yeah that's one. right oh, here he is that's right <laughs> yes I'd just like to explain why Lizzie called me that it's um, simply because I did my doctorate on evil not because of any innate qualities that's what you think. <laughs> In me. <laughs> um, the question, I suppose, is whether hell is a place or indeed a thing, something that you can create. Um, it's, it's, I th uh, forgive me for saying so, but I think there's a kind of, behind that question, and it's a very powerful question, lies a category mistake. Um, this is a, an, an analogy I've taken from uh, Professor Donovan, but it's quite um, kind of well-known in various forms. Uh, if, if you say to a carpenter, um, did you make this breakage? He might say, what do you mean make a breakage? I made a chair and it got broken. 
Uh, evil is not a thing. Uh, it's an event. It's a happening. Um, and the question is, what, what is hell in that way? Is it, is it a place? Is it a thing? Is it a state? What is it? Um, now, at the risk of getting a lot of letters uh, to uh, our website, um, I think that by and large, the imagery of the New Testament um, suggests uh, that what hell is is destruction. It's a metaphor for destruction. The, the word that is normally translated as hell in the New Testament uh, is Gehenna, which was um, basically the public incinerator uh, just outside Jerusalem, where all the rubbish of the city was burnt up, and where if you couldn't afford um, a burial site, a tomb, uh, then bodies were burnt as well. And so it's a picture for complete destruction. As we were saying earlier in the response to the previous question, or as I was anyway, um, to cut yourself off from God who is the source of life is ultimately to choose unlife. Uh, and that's what hell is. It is being the ultimate, being pushed to the logical conclusion of the choices that we've made. Uh, if we've chosen ultimately and irrevocably not to have anything to do with God, then what we are choosing is unlife, unmaking. Uh, destruction. And that's why Jesus compete, constantly says that the choices are the road that leads to life and the road that leads to destruction. Paul says, you know, talks about those who are perishing, those who are being saved. Those are the, those are the only two options. Um, so why did God create it? Uh, I don't think he created it. Why does he allow it? Because he allows us freedom and he allows us not to choose him, not to love him. He will not force us to love him, to obey him, to go with him, to go his way, because otherwise that choice is meaningless. Now, Mike, you, you're probably right as regards the sweep of the New Testament, but there are some tricky verses that you need to deal with if you're going to take that approach, I think. There are. So, for example, some verses in Revelation towards the end where it talks about eternal torment and suffering being thrown into the fiery lake. What would you make of those verses? Very good. Well, um, first thing I would say is that they're used of Satan and his angels rather than human beings. Um, that doesn't make it a lot easier. Um, it's just a bit of a relief for me, that's all. <laughs> um, and secondly, I would say that interestingly, the word for torment will be tormented forever on the, on the lake of sulfur. Uh, is the same word that is used for being tossed around, the, the, the boat that Jesus was in, being tossed around on the Sea of Tiberias, uh, Sea of the Galilee, whatever it was. Uh, and so it's a word that can just mean being tossed around. So the kind of remnants of their form is just, just becomes the flotsam and jetsam of, of, of this sea. I don't think it suggests any conscious torment. Uh, I think also the, when the... the scriptures talk about sort of eternal fire and, and that kind of image. I think it's actually precisely the fire that's eternal, um, not the suffering of the person who goes into the fire. Uh, you know, if you have a fire that just carries on burning forever, uh, and what that symbolizes, I think, is the fact that, that that possibility of turning away from God is always open to us. Uh, as Mike was saying, you know, God doesn't limit our freedom in that way. He always gives us the option of turning away from him towards Unlife to, to death. That's, this, that's what's symbolized, I think, by the eternal fire. But you know, if you take a bit of paper and you put it into an eternal fire, what happens to the bit of paper? It just gets burned up. Um, it doesn't carry on burning for, forever. It just gets burnt and destroyed. Now, now, and I think that that's, you know, it's, that's a key question. You know, is the eternal quality um, 
related to the, the fire that never goes out, or is it the eternal sufferings of the ones who go in there? And I guess for, for my money, it's the first of those. I think the other um, sort of angle to take on it is uh, we, we think of creation as being good, um, that all of creation is good. And so hell kind of has to fit into that picture somehow, <laughs> which is quite difficult because we tend to think of judgment as being this very negative thing. Um, and this isn't a complete answer by any means, but I remember being in Mexico City amongst very uh, poor people, and they were longing for judgment because to them that was uh, justice. So the people who were going to be judged were their oppressors. Mm. And I, it's not a complete answer at all, but it, it's a different angle on how we normally look at judgment, I think. I think it's really important that, that judgment happens. Part, judgment is part of the good news. Judgment is a way of saying that God is not going to allow the current pain and tragedy and suffering in his world to continue forever. He's not going to allow oppression and injustice to continue forever. Ever. He's going to put it right. The question is what form does that judgment take? And does it take the form of destruction of evil and that which will not let go of evil? Or does it take the form of eternal torment of those who've in practice that injustice um, but yeah, I think your point is a very good one that creation the goodness of creation is a really significant thing uh, Paul talks about how in the end God will be all in all now how can God be all in all if there's a little pocket of continuing and eternal resistance uh, that's one of the questions that I think those who believe in hell as eternal torment have to face uh, I think the other thing is I mean just going back to this idea of the goodness of creation which Lizzie's point has pointed us towards um, but if you think of creation, it is, you know, what's the opposite of creation? The opposite of creation is nothing. Um, it's, or chaos is what the Old Testament uses. You know, out of the chaos, out of nothingness, God creates. He brings something into being out of, out of nothing. And um, that's a good thing. Uh, but of course, that creation can return back to nothing again. It can go back to chaos. Uh, the creation can choose, no, we don't want this. It's too, good, it's too good for us. We can't cope with it. We want to go back to the chaos. And that's what I think the, the choice of turning away from God is. It's going to going back to before creation, going back to, to chaos, back to destruction, back to nothingness. And so at the end of the day, the choice between us, you know, facing humankind is, it's kind of God or nothing. Um, it's either worship and adoration or nothing. When the university I was at, the, the Christian Union ran a mission once with the title God or Nothing, kind of deliberately provocative. And um, the head of the Christian Union, the week of the mission, had been so busy with the mission that he didn't have time to write his weekly essay and turned up to the tutorial uh, and said, I'm afraid I haven't had time because of the mission to, to write my essay. And the tutor went, it's God and nothing, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very good. So I think the answer be cut out. to the question is, um, <laughs> is, you know, that's right. I mean, God does not create hell because, you know, hell is the opposite of creation. It's uncreation. It's nothing. It's chaos. It's the very thing out of which creation came. Um, yeah. That's not to say that there won't be a confrontation of people with the consequences of what they have done with the reality of the choices that they've made and the actions that they've inflicted on others, that the people won't be um, confronted with, with the seriousness and the appalling nature 
of what they have done. As, as what C.S. Lewis talks about planting the flag in enemy territory. God planting the flag there and saying, look, look at the reality of what you've done and the terribleness of what you've chosen. And I think the other thing is, is that, it, it, I mean, sometimes those who, who want to argue for constant, unending torment in, in hell uh, would say that the kind of position that we may have before here, well, it sounds a bit soft, really. You know, everyone gets away with it. They just sort of disappear into nothing and they're destroyed and, and that's fine, that's okay. Um, but I think that only works if you miss out on, if you kind of forget the wonder of what is awaiting for us in the resurrection. And that actually to miss out on our true destiny, which is to be transfigured, transformed into the new heaven and the new earth, is actually the worst thing that could ever happen to you. To miss out on that. I mean, it's, you know, we sometimes get you know, just little brief images of that here. You know, imagine what it's like. You know, all your, all your friends are invited to a, you know, the biggest party of the decade. Uh, and you realize you're the only one who's been left out. And you're out on the cold. I mean, you know, what a kind of grim thing that, that is. That's just a tiny picture of what it means to miss out on our, our ultimate destiny. And so, so actually destruction is not a sort of soft option. Uh, and again, uh, the, the, the strength, I think, of that point of view is it defines hell by the absence of heaven rather than the other way around. I think very often our images of heaven are defined by the, the absence of hell. You know, it's great. I don't have to go to hell. That's a, that's a relief. And, and one of the reasons why, you know, our, our images of heaven are so anemic, you know, sitting on a cloud with a harp, you know, thinking you wish you wished you'd bought a book. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, who wants to go there? And, 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 you know, we have these very anemic ideas of heaven because we define heaven by its, well, at least we haven't got a burn in hell. Um, so, you know, hell is the stronger idea and heaven is the weaker idea. And I, I, just want, I think we need to turn that around, that, you know, heaven is, uh, the new heaven and the new earth is such a wonderful thing. We just desperately want to be there. And to miss out on that is just the worst thing that could ever possibly happen to us. It's all that we are for without the current suffering, misunderstanding, conflict, violence, pain, suffering, relational breakup. All of that is, is, is who we are for without all the... Well, let me say mess, since I'm in company. Anything to add, Lizzie? No, nope, I think that covers it. <laughs> well, I was saying to Lizzie before, and she said, how long do these things normally take? And I said, oh, easy, half an hour. That's what we limit ourselves to. But we cut on for about 40 minutes, I think. As usual, we always do that. We which on far too long. But um, thank you very much. Big thank you to all of those of you here at St. George's. Uh, for some fantastic questions, some really interesting questions. We could have gone on all night. You probably couldn't, but we could have done. <laughs> so uh, thank you to Lizzie. Thank you. And Mike. And uh, we will uh, be with you again next time. That was GodPod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.